Information travels at nearly the speed of thought nowadays, and money moves almost as fast. Today on the podcast, we ask the question, what can the banking industry do to get up to speed? Anything? Stay tuned. Hello, you're listening to On the Merits, the weekly legal news podcast from Bloomberg Law and Bloomberg Government. I'm your host, David Schultz. We've all heard the phrase, life comes at you fast. Well, for bankers, life is moving a little too fast these days. Three banks have failed in just this month, and the stock prices of several others have taken a nosedive. It's the classic kind of contagion that has been happening in banking since time immemorial, only this time it's moving at warp speed. The rise of instant communication, both on social media and elsewhere, along with the rise of electronic bank transfers, mean that bank runs can and do happen scary fast. Bloomberg Law banking reporter Evan Weinberger has been covering all of this, and he just came out with a story about what regulators can do, if anything, to address this new wrinkle in how money moves around. I asked him to talk to me about the solutions people are throwing around, but first I wanted to get a sense of just how much faster things are moving nowadays. So I asked him about the last time we had bank runs back during the global financial crisis. So what happened in those cases was it took basically a couple of months from the time that the bank revealed some problems to the time that it took to get the bank for the bank to collapse. You know, everybody has a picture of what a bank run looks like from It's a Wonderful Life. No, but you're 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 thinking of this place all wrong as if I had the money back in a safe. The, the money's not here. In 2008, it wasn't that. It was electronic to a certain extent. But say IndyMac, it revealed in May of 2008 some problems uh, that it was it, it might face some solvency problems. It didn't fail until June. The real run started in June. And then Washington Mutual, Washington Mutual was kind of limping along for a while. Uh, J.P. Morgan tra- Chase tried to take it over earlier in like the summer of 2008 when it took over Bear Stearns. Washington Mutual unwisely uh, rejected the offer and eventually uh, was forced into a fire sale at J.P. Morgan Chase you know, in the fall of 2008 when everything went bad all at once. This was different on March 8th. A bank called Silvergate Bank failed. That bank failed, and nobody really paid that much attention. It was heavily tied up in cryptocurrencies. Weren't they kind of known for that? They really advertised themselves as like, we're the go-to crypto bank. Like, if you need to, you know, store your fiat currency somewhere and you're involved in crypto, we're your, we're your company, right? Yeah, that's basically it. And then all those, not all of them, but a large number of them, a significant number of them, and and their deposits turned out to be somewhat of a fraud. So the ones that weren't frauds left, and the ones that were, well, the money wasn't there anymore because it didn't really exist. So that was that was March 8th. That was March 8th. And with Silvergate, there weren't a lot of depositors like real you know, businesses or individuals depositing that. So the FDIC and the Fed and the California regulators basically allowed that bank to file its own voluntary petition to liquidate itself. And it just went out of business, you know, without much of a ripple. On March 9th, SVB announced that it was going to have to make some, it, it tried to raise some capital uh, because it had run into some accounting problems. You know, SVB was not a crypto bank. SVB was the, was the favored bank of venture capitalists and the portfolio companies that they funded. So anyway, on March 9th, they start talking, the venture capitalists start talking on Slack, and they start doing group chats, things of that nature, things that weren't really an issue in 2008. 
then they start pushing their portfolio companies to pull money out. They had $42 billion pulled out of the bank in hours. And just to, just to clarify, this is so March 9th is a Thursday. Uh, and then March 10th, of course, uh, is a Friday. What happened on that Friday? I mean, because I get the sense that that was it. Friday, Friday was, what, was the day that SB, SBV went under. That's it. Exactly right. So then you know, while you had this, after the Slack channels went crazy, the Twitter, you know, there was a lot on Twitter from investors, some of whom say that they were trying to save the bank and trying to get the FDIC and the Fed to back the bank up. Some who were, may or may not have been short, had short positions on the bank saying this thing is going down. So on Friday, March 10th, it fails. The interesting thing about it failing on Friday is the time of day that it failed. So the typical way that the FDIC takes over a bank that has failed is they usually have a few weeks to ramp up. You know, they know the bank's on the radar. They find somebody to buy it before it fails. They come in Friday after close of business and say, all right, everybody, you no longer operate. You are now a unit of this bank. They want to do it quietly so that by Monday morning, the depositors all have their money. Everybody goes home relatively happy, except for people who used to work at the old bank that failed. In this case, the money was moving out so fast and the situation was deteriorating so fast that they had to do it in the middle of the day. Wait, so does that mean there were people who were in line at the bank, the brick and mortar, you know, branch of the bank waiting to get their money back in the middle of the day and they were like, oh, this bank no longer exists, bye. Yeah, more or less. But also, I mean, you didn't have to do it by a showing up the way you would in It's Wonderful Life. You just do it on your phone. And huge amounts of money were just moving out. Remember, $42 billion in basically a matter of hours. People hadn't seen anything like that before. So do we know if there's like a patient zero uh, in terms of the either the Slack channels or Twitter where this is where the run really got started? Or did it happen so fast that it was almost instantaneous and that we don't really know where these, you know, this information got started, but it just spread almost instantaneously? I mean, there are some names out there. There are prominent people on Twitter who, who are saying a lot about SVB and, and, you know, in some ways stoking a panic and in some ways maybe saying what was really going on out there. It's really difficult to say. Um, the, you know, the, the issue, you know, banking is about confidence, right? So if you're confident your bank isn't going to fail, you're not going to touch your money. You're not going to think about the money. If you start hearing rumors that it's a problem, then you might go do that. If you hear the bank say, no, no, everything's fine. We don't need any more money. We're good. You might say, why are you saying that? And then take your money out. It's a really difficult thing to do when things are moving slow. When things are moving like exponentially fast, then it's almost impossible to deal with. So let's talk about solutions. And that's one of the things I really liked about your story is that it highlighted how difficult of a problem this is to solve. So what are the regulators talking about to make sure this doesn't happen again? Uh, people like Jay Powell, the chairman of the Fed, or even Sherrod Brown, the chair of the Senate Banking Committee, what are they talking about? They are not saying much at this point. Right now, you know, the FDIC and the Fed are doing uh, after-action reports that are due on May 1st to talk about what happened here. Aside from what the banks did, because there was a third bank that failed, Signature Bank in New York, which is a whole different story, but it was affected by some of the social media stuff as well. But aside from what the bank did, there are some really legitimate questions about what regulators are doing, what supervisors were doing. So on May 1st, we're expecting to see reports from the Fed and the FDIC about what's happened. 
That's that seems that seems pretty fast. I mean, for the government to issue a report that quickly. Well, I mean, the Fed's vice chair for supervision, Michael Barr, and the FDIC chairman are both testifying this week on March 28th and March 29th at the Senate Banking Committee and the uh, House Financial Services Committee, respectively. That sounds that that sounds really fun. Yeah. Um, so right now, where we're at is. You know, Federal Reserve Chairman Powell has already said this is something that, you know, they're concerned about. You know, Sherrod Brown has said they're concerned about it. Uh, Representative Patrick McHenry, he's the Republican chairman of the House Financial Services Committee. He's the one who really coined the term Twitter bank run, even though it's not 100 percent accurate. Uh, But he means social media in general. He's talked about it right now. The people who can make decisions are still saying we're basically in the fact finding mode we're we're worried you know this is something we're new and we're concerned about it you know this uh jane fraser who runs citigroup she said you know this is you know the speed of these runs a combination of being able to move money and social media really is something new um, that that bankers are concerned about as well so they're not ready to say what they're going to do yet but there are some ideas about there about what to do well let's get into what those ideas are because uh it sounds like there are some ideas but not many i mean what it's not like bankers can ban people from talking about them on twitter that's ludicrous there is a law in california about saying mean things about banks that may or may not be true on on social media okay well putting that aside it seems like it'd be hard to talk uh to to regulate chatter about banks on social media. And also, uh, you know, in terms of being able to electronically move money, that's not going to get rolled back anytime soon. Um, so what what can be done? Well, there are a couple of things. Um, you know, people have talked about creating a circuit breaker for banks, the way that you have a circuit breaker on, um, on stock trades that would be put in place in a situation like this where everybody can just catch their breath a little bit. It's unclear whether that's legal uh, and how you could do that, but it is an idea that may get a little bit of traction somewhere. I mean, the, the issue is that you have people who want to get their money out in a crisis, and it is their money. So, like, how do you prevent that? It's not like a stock. Yeah. Although there there is a precedent for that, which is, you know, the famous uh, bank holidays that uh, Franklin Roosevelt implemented during the Great Depression. Right. But that was for everybody. So doing it at one bank might be harder to do. I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It'd be it'd be hard to do a, a bank holiday on one bank. Yeah. So that's sort of the regulatory stuff. That's like the mechanics of banking. And there's probably things that you could do to make it easier. But regulating speech on social media, that is a problem. Like there might not be necessarily regulatory things that you can do other than making sure that banks are preparing for this sort of thing, you know, making that part of a stress test or something like that. The other thing that you that you talked about in your piece is that a lot of banks are saying to themselves, you know what, we need to up our social media games. We need to be out there and in the arena and knocking down rumors as they happen. Tell me a little bit more about that. Well, yeah, I mean, I've heard people say, you know, if you have influencers on one side saying that a bank is in trouble, the bank needs to deploy their own influencers. You know, it runs to the risk we ran, before, ran into before of, you know, saying your bank is fine to people might be something that makes other people say, hey, why are people talking about whether my bank is fine? You know, so it's a fine line that you could draw there. Um, so nobody really knows exactly how to do this other than to make sure a bank is liquid, um, you know, have the regulators monitor social media to make sure that, you know, 
if there's chatter, you know, having clear communication, you know, people have criticized the Biden administration about some of their communication during this whole crisis, um, you know, not being clear about what deposits are being protected and what per, uh, deposits aren't being protected, that sort of thing. Again, it's one of those things where in the fog of war as it's happening, how much are you supposed to say, um, you know, the Fed ran into something else where you know, it came right before they were supposed to announce uh, their new interest rate policy in March. There's a two-week period where Federal Reserve governors are not allowed to talk to the media and to the public before that. So that kind of may have played a role here as well. So maybe there's a way to kind of change that a little bit. Finally, uh, the last thing I wanted to ask you about is a distinction between liquidity and solvency. And I think that is something that I didn't really pay attention to until, well, I guess March 10th. And now I'm it's I'm acutely aware that there is a big difference between liquidity and solvency. Um, is it possible that we could see a social media triggered or a, you know, um, social, I guess, bank run that takes a bank that is totally solvent, but not, you know, as liquid as maybe it should be. And that bank goes under again, totally solvent, not quite liquid. And the bank fails. SVB met all of the capital standards. Really? They just didn't hedge their interest risks correctly, and they didn't. They had too much tied up in long-term securities as opposed to short-term ones that it's easy, you know, that are not as sensitive to interest rates. So they were selling bonds that they you know they bought at a hundred you know hundred cents to the dollar. They were getting eighty-five cents to the dollar on each one. Um, so that I mean, I mean, we've more or less seen that happen. The bank was was fairly well capitalized. It, it, you know, it had not received uh, supervisory notices about its capital levels. It did receive supervisory notices before it failed about its liquidity levels, which is different because they had, they had the assets. They just had the assets in the wrong place. And that's something regulators are going to look at in the future. Yeah. Yeah. But it sounds, I mean, based on what you just said, it sounds like this could happen to almost any bank. Yeah, theoretically. I mean, it depends. I mean, again, there are very specific circumstances. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't want. I don't want. To, I don't want people to hear that and think. You know, I need to go down to Bank of America and pull my money. Out no, of- that's the thing. Like yeah, yeah. even even talking about this, you want to be really careful because For sure. most banks are not in this precarious position. Um, and even Signature Bank, which is the bank that failed on March twelfth, Sunday night, they were. They were facing a potential bank run, and they had some issues tied to cryptocurrencies and things like that. Again, very specific things that that dealt with Signature Bank that most other banks aren't going to be facing. But that said, I mean, it sounds like the particular dynamics of social media and just of, you know, the way we communicate instantaneously now do pose a risk to, to banks. Yeah. And we haven't even talked about, like, AI and deepfakes and things and like that and that is just oh right well yeah you had something in your story about that where like there's a risk of like if someone deep fakes a bank ceo into saying like we have no money left like that in itself could cause a problem hey man i don't know there's a two-year-old tiktok of a of a deep fake tom cruise that still fools people to thinking tom cruise is there yeah and i've seen that i've seen that i I know but these are not very you know that's an old one yeah they're getting better that's true and 
if you're not a sophisticated investor, if you're not like someone who could, you know, pick Jamie Dimon or Jane Fraser or Charlie Sharp uh, yeah, yeah. out of a lineup and you see that and you have it well done, that could be really a problem. And nobody knows how to deal with that well. yet. That that that's what we'll be talking about uh, next time on uh, on the Maris. But, <laughs> but for now, uh, Evan, thank you so much. This was really interesting. Thank you. That'll do it for today's episode of On the Merits. It was produced by myself, David Schultz. Our editor is Andrew Satter, and our executive producer is Josh Block. Thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next week. Those nine justices in Washington can be hard to keep track of. That's where we come in. On our podcast, Cases and Controversies, we give you a week-by-week accounting of the Supreme Court, the filings, the arguments, the opinions, and much, much more. Check in on Fridays with Bloomberg Law's Cases and Controversies to find out what's coming up on the horizon of the Supreme Court. Download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.